Well, my name is Rick Lyman, one of the pastors on staff here. It's my privilege to share with you in God's holy word today. If you've been tracking with us recently, we're in the midst of a lengthy series called Wild as we're tracking with God's dealings with the Israelites in the book of Exodus, the second book in the Old Testament. It's been an exciting and tremendously instructive journey so far as we've watched as God has done marvelous miracles, 11 of them at least, to deliver his people out of the nation of Egypt and bring them through the Red Sea and set them free from the oppressive power of Pharaoh. And we're going to be beginning to track that further. What happens next as that ride for the Israelites becomes even a little more wild, probably wilder than they expected when they left Egypt. We're going to pick up the, uh, the story here in Exodus chapter 15 where all the Israelites, about two and a half million of them, gather on the other side of the Red Sea thinking, wow, we are free now. And they have a worship service likely the largest in-person worship gathering in the history of the human race up to this point. 2.4 million or so are singing praise to God. And that hymn that they sing is in the first 16, 18 verses of chapter 15. I'm not going to read through it. I'm just going to summarize that. The first five verses, they're celebrating God's victory. It's announcing what God did for them. The next five verses talk about God's weapons, what he used to deliver the people of Egypt, from Egypt. The next five verses talk about the character of God, that he brought them through and revealed his loving kindness to the Israelites. And the last two verses, 16, 17, 18, last three, are God's promises being fulfilled and thanking God for those things. They do gloat just a little bit over God's victory, having seen all of Pharaoh's army and their taskmasters drown in the Red Sea behind them and seeing their bodies strewn on the shore. They're going, yay, God, you're really cool, right? Um, I'm not sure what the Israelites really expected next, but some of them might have been thinking, hey, let's hang around here on the beach and maybe check into the, the Ritz-Carlton Red Sea Resort, you know, have some nice fun, you know, sun on the beach a little bit, uh, play tambourines and guitars and sing worship songs for, forever. But God had some other plans for them, as we'll soon see. I'm going to invite you to stand with me for the reading of our passage of Scripture out of Exodus chapter 15, verses 22 to 24. Hear the word of the Lord. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went into the desert of Shur, for three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. That is why the place is called Marah. So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What are we to drink? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You remain standing as we join together in a word of prayer. Every time we open the scriptures, whether it's in a corporate public setting like this or privately, it's a very wise thing to ask the Holy Spirit to illuminate his word to our hearts. So let's pray that way today. Father, we thank you for giving us your word. Every word that you inspired from the beginning of Genesis to the last chapter of Revelation is here for our purpose and our blessing and our encouragement. Lord, you authored these words. You inspired them to be written and recorded and preserved. We ask you by your same spirit to illuminate these to our hearts that we can truly hear what it is you are speaking to us personally 
and corporately for such a time as this. We ask you these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So I want you to get this picture. We've got a large throng of people out now across the Red Sea where God had led them, and now they're kind of trying to figure out what's next. They're thinking, they were talking a while ago about this land flowing with milk and honey, good and spacious land, this promised land, and they're looking around going, rocks, desert, this doesn't look quite that good. Maybe it's around the next mountain that we come around here. And they said, okay, this Moses guy got us out of Egypt, so he says we're going somewhere, so let's follow him. I suspect some of them had a picture of like Disney World or Disneyland, fun rides, great food, great beverages, maybe even a place that they could farm and raise their cattle and the other things, and no problems, no enemies, no pressure, swimming pools, movie stars, you get all that. They had this in their minds. Now, God did have a plan for them, but that wasn't exactly it. I suspect some of you in your life have taken a trip someplace where you looked through brochures or looked online and had these really high expectations, which you imagined the place might be like. But then you got there and saw that maybe some of those things were a little exaggerated or weren't anything close to that. Well, that happened to our family back in 1967. Most of us in this room can remember that. Um, I was nine years old, my younger brother Paul was seven, and my parents got this great idea. In Montreal that summer was Expo 67, the World's Fair. Any of you go to that? It was a great experience. However, they piled all seven of us into our iridescent blue Pontiac station wagon, and we headed out for that 16-hour drive, 850 miles across to Montreal in one day. Now, Paul and I were the youngest two, so they stuck us in the way back in the, in the station wagon. And because we kept asking that obvious question, are we there yet? When are we to get there? We got these assignments from my older siblings. Why don't you guys count cars for a while? Rick, you count the Fords. Paul, you count the Chevys. Ever try that game? After we got really tired of that, they just said, just count the telephone poles. They just wanted us to shut up and start doing something. But we did get there by evening in Montreal. About 10 o'clock at night, we're all exhausted, just looking to get a good night's rest, maybe wash up a little bit, maybe shower, something like that. And we got to this place where the reservations had been made. They're called the roundelows. They looked great in the brochures, apparently, but we got there, and they were fiberboard huts, circular huts with pie-shaped rooms cut out of them, very small to begin with, and very thin walls that you could put your finger through almost. And guess what? We got in there, and there was no sink. These little rooms, no toilet, no shower, no water. And we asked about this. It was 10 o'clock at night. We asked them, oh, that's a few blocks down. You go out to that street there, walk three blocks down, you'll find a public restroom, and there's showers there. We're like, oh, my goodness. Well, that's kind of the shock that these Israelites probably had. They get out of Egypt. Moses leads them, and they go along, and they've gone three days without water. Guess what? The average human being, most of us, will die if we don't have palatable water after about three days. The body needs that. And they get to this place, they find water, and they go, oh, this is terrible. We can't drink this. So God hears they're complaining, and he asks God, God tells Moses, take this stick, put it in the water, and it's going to make it drinkable. Okay? And they were fine. Well, unfortunately, God had already just spared the lives of all of these people right before their eyes, and quickly, three days later, they're complaining. They forgot everything 
that they'd just seen God do for them. They forgot about the God who had been there for them in Egypt and delivered them, and they're complaining and thinking he was going to lose them in the desert somehow. They had a great worship service figuratively on Sunday, and by Wednesday, they're way off track already. About that crossing, I want to get you some perspective here, just the magnitude of the miracle that they saw. There was a couple million people to get that many people through the Red Sea in one night. Do you realize it would, they went two by two? The line would have been 800 miles long and taken 35 days and nights to cross. So this path through the Red Sea had to be somewhere along the lines of three miles wide, and shoulder to shoulder, they walked 5,000 people across. Okay, this is a big deal. This isn't some small miracle. Oh, is that just accidental? Is that just circumstantial? No, God had done a marvelous miracle. But what they didn't realize at this point early in their journey is that God had an intentional, specific, and fully orbed plan to transform this group of victims, victims of slavery, who had no rights, no advocate, no power, no voice, and no ability to escape it into victors, free from the oppression of slavery, with God as their advocate now, with God's listening ear, and ultimately God would want to use this group of people to conquer other nations in that promised land. They didn't get that, but God has a three-phase plan for all of us pictured in the Israelites. The number one step in that plan is his deliverance, where God works for us. He just does it all, and we know that Jesus before any of us were born, came to this earth, laid his life down on the cross, paid for our sins, was raised from the dead, and ascended back to heaven. God redeemed us before we could ever ask him to do it, and we never would have asked for that. He planned that out. The first phase for all of us is his deliverance phase. But then begins what I call the development phase, where God's work for them in, in deliverance, he works in us in the development phase where who he is it becomes implanted in us he teaches us in these wilderness moments when he's developing us how to worship he shows us his ways he guides us in our walk with him ultimately he entrusts his work to us and through all of that he makes us warriors for him and his purposes and his purposes of this world this is the purpose of that wilderness journey of those Israelites and also the wilderness experiences that we find ourselves in so very often. But I can imagine by this point some of those Israelites saying, wait a minute, this isn't what I signed up for. I must be on the wrong tour here. We're out in the desert. We've got no good water. God had to do a miracle to save us. The fact is, simple lesson is, it's way better to have God on your side providing for you than to be his enemy. You realize Moses says this in, verse chapter, in chapter 15, verse 25. Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. He threw it into the water, and the water became fit to drink. So God does a miracle. He makes unpalatable water drinkable for them. You realize back in Egypt, these same Israelites had watched God turn very healthy, palatable water in, the Egyptians, uh, in Egypt into undrinkable blood that would actually make them sick if they drank it. Now he takes unpalatable water and makes it healthy for them to drink. It's better to have God on your side, as I said a moment ago. But if we're really honest with ourselves, and I'm trying to be honest with myself as I say this, we have to admit 
way too often we praise God and sing worship to him here in church, and in a very short time, we go out and get wound up again. Fear and anxiety and discouragement can quickly be stirred in us as we look at our circumstances, looking at all of our difficulties we're facing, and we forget how many times God has bailed us out in the past. You know, I realize that might be exactly where you find yourself today, facing an apparently impossible or confusing situation that you just can't see through. You can't see a way you can get through it or get out of it. You might be asking some of the why questions that are so natural to have at that time, like, why me? Why now? Why this? Why not him? Why not her? Why won't this pain end? Why won't you help me? Why don't you answer my prayers? Why don't you save me from this? Why didn't you protect me, my child, from this? Why didn't you warn me? Why did you let the devil do this to me? Why, why, why? Friends, asking the why questions is completely normal. It's just how we ask them. God welcomes us with open arms and an open heart when we cry out to him in our confusion and bewilderment. But there's a huge difference between asking God questions and questioning God. When we feel overwhelmed in our lives, the author of life wants us to trust him in what seems impossible to us. Friends, James tells us this in first chapter, verses 2 through 4. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And then he shows us how to get response from God asking the right way. If any of you lacks wisdom, in chapter, five, chapter 1, verse 5, to guide them through a decision or circumstance, you're to ask of our benevolent God who gives to everyone generously and without rebuke or blame, and it will be given to them. Friends, God wants to be your shepherd. He wants to be with you in the midst of the most difficult seasons of life. So ask him for wisdom instead of shaking a fist up at him and anger. The reality is, friends, the only way for us to grow in faith and develop real trust in God, which is what we're talking about here today, is for us to be in real-life circumstances that are beyond our ability to wiggle out of or get around and to see God intervene or empower us to overcome those things. It's a necessary part of our faith development. Trials, friends, come to grow our faith and our trust in God not to weaken us. This is profoundly important inner transformation that needs to happen. To go from prideful self-reliance, which all of us wrestle with, to 100% humble reliance upon God himself. To release the reins of our life. To ask God, okay, what am I really supposed to do here? What's your best way through this? That humble prayer will always be answered. Peter says it this way, Dear friends, don't be surprised 
at the fiery trials you're going through as if something strange were happening to you. I want to suggest to you seven different truths about trials here. Number one, trials are simply a fact of life in a fallen world. They happen to everybody. Different degrees, different length, different times, but it's a part of life in this world. We just simply need to accept that. Secondly, trials come in many different forms. They vary in intensity and their duration. Sometimes those wilderness experiences are really short, kind of a quick trip. Other times they can go on for days, weeks, months, years, or maybe even decades in some cases. But trials come to test our faith, to strengthen us. They're valuable and necessary in our lives. They will indeed benefit us if we joyfully accept them. They also encourage or even force us to pray a little bit more, and they encourage or maybe force us to see life from an eternal perspective. We've got our lens. God's got a very different lens on what's going on, and he's glad to share that with us if we'll allow him to speak in those moments. Instead of shaking our fist at him, we open our hand and say, Lord, help me. I don't get what's going on. I need your help. Jesus prepared his first disciples in the Sermon on the Mount, and thus us as well, when he said this about the path of life for the righteous. He said, enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it, but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. The New Living Translation captures it so well when it says the same verses, You can enter God's kingdom only through the narrow gate. The highway to hell is broad, and its gate is wide for the many who choose that way. But the gateway to life is very narrow, and the road is difficult, and only a few ever find it. So friends, there are two ways in life. The easy way here, which leads to eternal destruction, or the much more difficult way here, which leads to heaven and eternal bliss. Pastor John Corson captures this thought so very well when he says this, just imagine that you have a flight to take from Chicago to L.A. someday. You're at O'Hare Airport, you go to the ticket counter at Delta Airlines, and the agent tells you that the pilots have been experiencing reporting a very bumpy ride to L.A. today. You can expect a lot of turbulence, but our planes are very well maintained, and we guarantee that you'll get there safely and on time. Like, That doesn't sound that great. So, hey, hold on. I'm going to go over to America and go to the American desk and say, do you have any seats open on your next flight to L.A.? Gate agent says, oh, sure. I can guarantee you a perfectly smooth ride all the way there. But our pilots have been having some trouble landing our planes lately. We've had three plane crashes on landing due to equipment malfunctions, but we guarantee a smooth flight, even if it's a bad ending. Which, Which flight do you think you'd take? I think you might choose the right one. So coming back to our Exodus story, after God saved their lives for another miracle, the scripture says this in verse 25 of chapter 15. There the Lord issued a ruling and instruction for them and put them to the test. He said, if you listen carefully to the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, If you pay attention to his commands and keep all his decrees, I will not bring on you the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. Friends, this is such a huge verse in the scriptures. 
you've never underlined it or circled it, maybe you don't like to write in your Bible, and you can write in the pew Bibles, just don't tell anybody I told you you could. But there's a huge secret embedded in this that I'll get to in just a minute. This one verse tells us exactly how to pass God's tests when he sends them our way to test and prove it, prove us. Let's take a look a little closer. Number one, it says, listen carefully to the Lord your God. That means having an open posture, listening for God to give you instruction. How many of your parents or grandparents or have worked with kids who don't really listen? Some of you maybe were teachers and the kids don't listen. I was one of those kids in class that didn't listen very often, but that's beside the point. Listen carefully to the Lord your God. Keep an open dialogue with him. Secondly, do what is right in his eyes, not what's right in the eyes of your friends or your peers or those around you or yourself. Think about what God's thinking about it, that he's actually watching you and he sees what you're doing anyway. Do what is right in his eyes. Thirdly, pay attention to his commands. Take good notes. When you say, do this or don't do that, thou shalt or thou shalt not, those are all there to guide you in the best path for your life. Pay attention to his commands. And lastly, keep all of his decrees. Don't just pick and choose the one. I, I like that. I'll do that. But this other stuff, I don't want to do, God. You, you have somebody else do that. All of them. Then the promise comes. You do those things, I will not bring diseases on you. And I am the Lord who heals you. Jehovah Rapha, I will keep you healed and healthy. So while God brought the Israelites into the wilderness to test them for their good, they go on disobeying him, ignoring clear directives, and they were testing God. God's planning to test them, and they're putting God to the test. They had it all backwards. They didn't have, mind you, a map or a GPS device to lead them. No, they got far better than that. They had God in the front seat of the car next to them, giving them turn-by-turn direction. Oh, it wasn't a car. I know they didn't have cars. It was a pillar of fire and a pillar of smoke. God was leading them in an obvious way. But friends, for this whole thing to work, the people had to actually obey every single command and directive from God. They had to depend on him. Friends, obedience is a really big deal to God. He is God after all. And if he asks us to do something or commands it, we should just say, oh, sure, yeah, great, we'll do that. But we don't do it. Friends, sometimes we think, as they did in Israel, the Israelites, we know better than God, or we're wiser than God, or better at directing our lives than God might be, or we think we know the future better than God does. You know what that mindset is? That's called lunacy. We're human beings. We only know in part. God knows everything. Following him in obedience is the healthiest, best, most blessed way to live our lives. Oswald Chambers captured it this way. He says, one step forward in obedience is worth years of study about it. Thomas A. Kempis said in The Imitation of Christ, instant obedience is the only kind of obedience there is. Delayed obedience is actually disobedience. Friends, here's the secret. The shortest route through the God-ordained wilderness experiences we find ourselves in is drastic obedience. It's the shortest route. 
The distance between Egypt and where the promised land was was really not that far. We're not talking a long distance, but God led the Israelites into the wilderness to test and try them and develop them into ones who could go into that promised land one day. And they rebelled against all of it. I don't want to be a give away the end of the story, but let's just say these people didn't listen to God very well. It's like us reading the Bible for information and inspiration, but then skipping over the directives and commands that would align our lives with God's will and thinking that's the best way. This exact directive, by the way, of listening and obeying God is echoed many times by Jesus in the gospel. Here's just a couple of those times. In the Great Commission, Jesus said, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything, exactly what we find here in Exodus, everything I've commanded you. Not some of it, not a little of it, all of it, everything that Jesus gave them. Jesus said in Mark 6, 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? The former chaplain of the United States Senate, Peter Marshall, explains it so well this way. He says, I wonder what would happen if we all agreed to read one of the Gospels until we came to a place that God told us to do something, then went out to do it, and only after we'd done it began reading again. Then he goes on to say this. There's aspects of the Gospel that are puzzling and difficult to understand, to be sure. But our problems are not centered around the things we don't understand, but rather in the things we do understand, the things we could not possibly misunderstand. Our problem is not so much that we don't know what we should do. We know perfectly well, but we don't want to do it. That's the real problem. Friends, obedience is God's love language. You know, there's the five love languages that your spouse is probably informing you about, to how to treat them and reminding you of all this. God's love language is obedience. Jesus said in the Gospel of John, if you love me, you will obey me. Really simple in John chapter 15. Pastor Rick Warren summarizes so beautifully in four key aspects of living in line with God's perfect will. Number one, obey God immediately. Don't delay. The psalmist says, I will quickly obey your commands before you forget. Secondly, obey God completely. James 4.11 says, your job is not to decide whether God's law is right or wrong, but to obey it. Thirdly, obey God joyfully. The psalmist says, I enjoy obeying your commands. And fourth, the psalmist says, obey God continually. Keep going. It's not a one day, one month, one year. Keep obeying and following him. Before you know it, you're going to be face to face with him in heaven, hearing those words, well done, my good and faithful servant. But back to our Exodus story. The journey begins again. And verse 27 of chapter 15 says, Then they came to Elam, where there were 12 springs and 70 palm trees, and they camped there near the water. Do you realize that Elam was five miles away from Mara? That was God's plan. They just found this other water and had God had to do a miracle to, to help them survive, but he had plenty of water just another hour down the road. But they missed that. They got there. Friends, God supplied their demand back in Mara, but he'd already met this need. 
Sometimes we're almost to the other side of a wilderness time and experience, and we're getting the most frustrated, and we're bellyaching the most about it. God says, just follow me a little further. Just give it a little bit more time, and you're going to see my provision. You're going to find my healing. You're going to find my provision. Don't give up until you find that, friends. But it wasn't long before our Israelite friends found something else to bemoan and complain about. Chapter 16 starts out saying this, the whole Israelite community set out from Elam, the oasis, and came to the desert of Sin. In the desert, the whole community, we're talking millions of people, grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, if we'd only died by the Lord's hand in Egypt, there we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you brought us out of this desert to starve us this entire assembly to death. I mean, you talk about negative thinking. They've seen miracles in Egypt. They get through the Red Sea. They see God provide, and now wishing they were dead, and they think they're going to be starved. So the next test for the Israelites was the food test, and they failed this one terribly as well. So God answers. Exodus 16, 11, and 12 says, The Lord says to Moses, I've heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them, at twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you'll be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. They should have known this already, friends. But to fully appreciate this, there's no Safeway or Aldi stores nearby or Whole Foods, none. There's no grass or shrubs or fruit-bearing trees to eat from. There's no way to grow or harvest crops in time to feed them at that time in that barren wilderness, and they had to feed two million people. According to the U.S. Army's quartermaster general, looking at this, Moses needed 1,500 tons of food a day, which would fill two freight drains each a mile long. Plus, they needed to cook that food. That would take about 4,000 tons of firewood, a bunch more freight trains every single day. And God provided those things every day for 40 years. Let's not forget the water we talked about. How much water would they need for that many people? About 10 million gallons a day. That's a whole bunch of tanker cars on freight trains. And there were no trains back then, and there weren't any other way to get the stuff out there. But God had a plan. He knew what he was doing. Despite all of that stuff, God had a plan to feed them with manna every morning and to feed them in the evening. They demanded meat. He gave them quail. You'll read more in the story about that later, but for now, he had provision. He had a plan. They just didn't know what the plan was. But he gave them one command about the food. Remember? If you read this before, just take enough for that day. This stuff will not last. You don't have refrigerators. You don't have uh, coolers. You don't have a source of preservation. So just take what you need. And on Sabbath, before the Sabbath, take two days' worth. And guess what? What do the Israelites do? They ignore that and disobey that. And they're taking more than they need of both of those things. The meat becomes filled with maggots and the other stuff gets moldy and they can't eat it. They don't listen. One command and they already blew it. So friends, they move from that experience and God's taking care of them and now comes a whole different thing than they expected. Exodus 17, they come under attack. Verse 8 says, The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Moses says to Joshua, Choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. Now, God sends them into battle. They weren't planning on that. 
These people have been slaves for hundreds of years. They're not trained to fight. They don't have weapons. They do not have military structure or leaders. And God allows the Amalekites, descendants of Esau, by the way, uh, always been a conflict, Jacob and Esau. This is another one of them. And has these people, lets them attack. And hey, we better fight. Moses knew enough and God knew enough. They didn't know how to do this. So Moses goes up on the mountain, holds his staff up, and as long, the scripture says, as Moses holding his hands up and that staff up, the Israelites were winning by God's miraculous power only. When the praying weakened and his arms weakened, then the Amalekites had the advantage. There's such a profound lesson in this is the role of intercessory prayer. God wants to do his will and his work through our prayers and through us in the battles that we face as well. Power of prayer is prevalent throughout the scriptures, but this is one of the first obvious demonstrations of God's power to win in a spiritual battle for us. Friends, we're battling unseen enemies as well as the ones that we know. The scriptures say the devil come to kill, steal, and destroy, but I've come that you might have life. The power of someone praying with you or praying for you during those times is very vital. But friends, then we move and moving quickly through a lot of these things, to chapter 18. Moses has led this huge throng of people, and guess what? They have more than complaints about water and about food, and you know what? They have some disputes amongst themselves. Imagine this. They got nothing else to do. There's no TV to watch. There's no Netflix. There's nothing. They're just arguing, fighting over stuff all the time. So Moses, with not the proper yet training and leadership, tries to handle all of it himself. The lines are miles long every day from sunup to sundown. He's getting worn out. No one's getting there. So Jethro, his father-in-law, finds him. I think God sent him. Now, when I think of Jethro, I think of the Beverly Hillbillies. So don't picture him, if you remember what I'm talking about, Jethro on that show. This is a wise man who comes and says, Moses, what you're doing? You're, you can't do this. You've got to get some structure here. You're going to wear yourself out, and the people aren't going to get what they need. So Jethro suggests to him, select some trustworthy people and appoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. A structure that makes sense. You handle the really tough stuff, and they can handle all the rest. God's not asking any one of us to do it all. Sometimes, if we have a controlling nature or can't let go of things, we try to do way more than God's asking us to do. In your families, children, grandchildren, maybe great-grandchildren, a circle like this, we're taking on everybody else's stuff. And God's saying, no, no, no. I got other people to handle that. That's their problem. That's their issue. Take on what God is asking you to do and trust him for the rest. That takes some faith sometimes. When we're certain the way we would do it is better than the person doing it. And we step in. Sometimes we step in it. We get ourselves into trouble by doing that. Moses' instruction was, hey, Distribute this. Let those people handle it. You take the tough things. Friends, as we move to a close, maybe you're one of those who feel that you're lost in a wilderness right now. Can't see up or down or in or out. You're overwhelmed, confused, maybe depressed and fearful, with no end in sight. You find yourself asking some of those why questions I mentioned a while back. Some of you may be feeling deeply, painfully, the loss of a loved one, a spouse, parent, sibling, or child. You're feeling very dry and distant from God, feeling you're in a desert wasteland spiritually, and maybe you have your own family battles going on. 
You're fighting for your marriage. You're fighting for your children. Can't seem to handle your finances just up and down and back and forth. Or maybe you or a close family member of yours is battling a serious illness and a bad prognosis, friends. Please know for certain that the very same God who guided and provided for the Israelites is here right now among us. He can and he will guide you step by step if you simply cry out to him, ask him for help, ask him for direction. Lord, what is my next step? You pray with me. Lord, thank you that you said you'd never leave or forsake us, that you'd be with us to the end of the age. Lord, we all need direction. We all need correction. We all need light on our path ahead. I pray, God, that you'll help each of us make sense of where we find ourselves today in a wilderness of whatever kind it may be, and that we know in your heart your desire is, in fact, to lead us to that fullness and maturity and ability to walk through this life as victors instead of as victims. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.